Good morning, beautiful GT family. I, I can't begin to tell you what a joy and an honor it is for Trina and I to be with you here this morning. We just want to begin by saying thank you. Thank you for uh, feeling like our home church. Every time we come to GT, we feel like we've come home. Thank you for your incredible generosity, for your love, for your prayers over many, many years. And thank you so much for standing with us in this difficult time for our family. We're in the process of transition, which is actually very good, from East Africa to West Africa, as Pastor Brian mentioned, from serving in, in uh, Live Dead and training and as an area director in East Africa, and now to West Africa, to the country of Togo, where I'll be serving at the Pan-Africa Theological Seminary as the vice chancellor, leading the doctoral programs for the Assemblies of God on the continent and where Trina is engaging with the Africa Assemblies of God Alliance as the missionary representative to the Women in Ministry Department. It gives her the opportunity, literally, to speak into and to encourage hundreds of thousands of women, African women in ministry on the continent. And thank you as well, because we're also walking through the difficult time um, of, as our family, as I mentioned to you just a second ago, and as Pastor Brian alluded to, this year in January, our youngest son, Micah, who was studying to be a pastor and then a missionary to Latin America, uh, was called home to heaven. It was the most difficult time in our lives. But you have stood with us in prayer. You've been incredibly generous to us. You, you, you love us. You communicate with us. You surround us. Every day since Micah went to be with Jesus, someone has, from the family of God, has called us, has sent an email to us, has prayed for us, has texted us, has messaged us. I can't begin to tell you how grateful we are. And I, I have no idea how someone can survive that without Jesus. And how can someone survive that without the church of Jesus Christ? Thank you for your love for us. And we want you to know we love you too. And we're grateful to be a part of GT. Now, if you have your Bibles, if you don't mind, please turn with me to the book of 2 Timothy. If you have an electronic device, you're probably already there. 2 Timothy chapter 4. I'm reading from the OGV, the old guy version. That would be the leather Bible. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse number 6, it says this. For I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. The Ethiopia Assemblies of God began in, in the fires of revival. The very first Ethiopia AG church, Sidis Kilo Gubai Xavier Rebeta Christian, Kilometer 6 Assembly of God Church, began with just 12 people in a living room and literally grew in about a 10-year period to 16,000 people. People would literally come from around the world to see what Jesus was doing there because demons were being cast out, lives were being healed. Every service in that local church, that local church, every service for 10 years, someone came to know Jesus Christ. And right in the middle of that, that church was on fire. And right in the middle of that, Pastor Walde, who is my dear friend, came to me and he said, he said, Brother Steve, now is the time. Now is the time we have to really hit missions into the heart of the people in Ethiopia to our local church. I want your team to come 
and we want to take several weeks and we want to preach on missions and we want to give to missions. And at the very end, the very last Sunday, you wrap it up, Steve, and we're going to take up a, a crazy offering and we're going to have a phenomenal time at the altar where people give themselves to the nations. Man, I'm telling you, it was awesome. I mean, for weeks, there was worshiping and prayer and demons being cast out and people getting saved and, and the team was preaching. And the very last day, I had the opportunity, the last Sunday, and I got up there and I preached and, and the building was jammed with people. There's a building about the size of this sanctuary, but there was probably about three times the number of people past the fire code that were supposed to be in there and they were all around on the outside and, and people were getting saved. And I gave the altar call and people came to the altar to give them, themselves to the great commission to Jesus. And then as I was standing back and watching as the ushers received the offering, I, I was standing with Pastor Welde to the side and there was a curtain over on the side and I saw all of the ushers and they, they brought in all of, these, all of these baskets. And all of these baskets, I, I just had the opportunity to just, just kind of glance at the baskets to see what, how they gave. And inside the baskets, you could see Italian lira, and you could see Ethiopian burr, and you could see, you can see Great Britain pounds, you could see U.S. dollars, lots and lots of coins. And as I looked into the offering, I saw pencils, literally hundreds and hundreds of pencils. And I was standing there just in shock. I, I, I didn't know what to, what, what, what do you do with pencils? And Pastor Walde looked at me, and with a small smile etched across his face, he said, you don't understand that, do you? I said, why would people give pencils? He said, Steve, 80%, 85% of this congregation are students. He said, they're young men and women from across Ethiopia who are very bright but very poor. He said their entire life, they study and they work hard and they sit for an exam, which determines whether they'll go back to the farm or whether they'll get to come to university in Addis Ababa. And if they're one of the bright ones in the country, they come to Addis Ababa and they come with a pencil. You see, see that pencil is not, just, is not just a piece of wood with lead in the middle of it. He said it represents all their struggles. He said it represents their family and their village. It represents their town and their community. It represents their future. Those pencils represent everything to that student. Steve, when they put their pencils in the offering bucket, they put their lives in the offering bucket. Paul was in a Roman prison, writing this last letter to his son in the faith, Timothy, with a profound sense of urgency. He wrote from the Roman prison, knowing that this would be his last opportunity to engage with this young pastor, it would be his last letter, and that he would soon experience ultimate persecution, martyrdom. And, and one can only imagine the emotions that saturated Paul's heart and Paul's mind. It was his last letter to the church, the last time he would write to Timothy and to us. It represented a critical moment in the life of the church. It was a transition from Paul to Timothy and the transition from the first generation to the next generation. Paul had given everything. He had given his all for Jesus, and it's time for the next generation of believers to do the same thing. Paul is stepping out and he's encouraging Timothy to step up. And one 
might expect Paul to, to sit in that cell filled with feelings of sorrow or regret as he writes. But you don't sense that at all. Rather, his words, they, they pulse with life and hope and courage and fire. And he starts by saying, I am already being poured out. Now, Paul speaks in two time frames. He's, he's speaking in the past and he's speaking about the imminent. I'm already being poured out. This is the second time he's used that language in his writings. He, he did it the first time in Philippians chapter 2, verse 17. He's referring to the Old, temple, Old Testament temple sacrifice. It was a powerful moment of worship. It was complete. It was total. It was final. It was holy. And the word that he chooses to live here that's translated poured out is the Greek word spendo. Interesting, isn't it? Spendo. He was being absolutely, completely, utterly spent. Why would someone do that? I mean, why would someone give everything? Why would someone give all. Paul had been a zealot. He was the worst kind. He was so consumed with religion that there was no room in his heart for empathy or in his mind for reason. He was all passion and no heart. In fact, Paul was there when Stephen was stoned, giving his blessing to Stephen's execution. The Bible says that that day, a great persecution broke out against the church, and at the front of the violence was a young man named Paul, or Saul at that time. Acts chapter 8, verse 3 says this. Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women, and he put them into prison. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and following tell us that he was breathing out murderous threats against the church. He was so consumed with hatred, so consumed with murder that his very life emanated it. And in chapter 22, verse 4 of Acts, Paul himself tells us that he persecuted believers to their death. He was a terrifying, brutal, relentless persecutor of the church. And then something shattered him. Or, or should I say, someone shattered Paul. It was, it was a single event. It's recorded in Acts chapter 9. A solitary moment for Paul. It was a cataclysmic experience that completely, utterly, fully changed him. It transformed him forever. Because on that Damascus road, Paul came face to face with Jesus Christ. And Paul, in his own words, describes it. He says that the, the light that he saw poured all over him, all around it. It permeated through him. As it was brighter than the sun. It was blazing around me and my companions. And he was terrified. And groping in blindness, he asked the question, Who are you, Lord? Notice that question. He starts by saying, Who are you? 
That is the most critical question in the entirety of the Bible. The whole Old Testament lays a foundation towards that revelation. And all of the Gospels in the New Testament speak to it and answer that question. Who is Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus Christ? When Pastor Brian and I were in Bible college, our, our New Testament professors used to teach us that in the Gospel of Mark, the most critical verse is chapter 10, verse 45, which says that I have not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom to many. Now, I, I still believe that that is a critical verse in the Gospel of Mark, but I, I, I don't really believe that it's the critical verse in the Gospel of Mark. I, I rather believe it's a story. There's a narrative in chapter four towards the end where Jesus and his disciples are on the lake and all of a sudden a furious storm drops on them and they're in fear of their life. Jesus stands up and with a single word he speaks and the wind and the waves obey him and there's calm and there's peace except in the heart of the disciples who are looking at this man who can command the wind and the waves to do what he wants them to do. And the Bible says they were terrified and they asked themselves, who is this? Every story in that gospel points to a singular question, whether it's the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000. The question is, who can do that? Jesus walking on water, every conversation, demons being cast out, bodies being healed, and it all begs a singular question, who is Jesus Christ? Even 1045 in the gospel of Mark means nothing until we begin to understand who Jesus truly is. Because if Jesus is just some teacher, some philosopher, some good guy, then his death might be inspiring, but it's not vicarious. In other words, there's no power to change you. There's no power to save you. If Jesus is just some normal guy, who is Jesus Christ? It's the most critical question in the world. And it's what Paul says, who are you? And then he adds this word, Lord, who are you, Lord? Now, we often read through the New Testament because we've read it so many times that we just kind of pass through words without really thinking about their import, their weight, what they, what they mean. And, and when Paul asked that question, he, he realized, who are you, begs a response. But in his question, he gives a response because he adds the word, Lord. Now, that's critical because it's the term kyrios, the word Lord. And he uses the word kyrios to address the one in the blinding light. It's important because that's the Old Testament. It's, it's in the New Testament, but it's the Old Testament word that was important to refer to the God of the Old Testament. In other words, to refer to the God of Israel, the word used to, to refer or to speak to the God of Israel, who is Jehovah. Paul knew that the one in the blinding light was Jehovah. And he says to him, who are you, Lord? Knowing it was Jesus Christ, he says, who are you, Lord? Who is Jesus Christ? And how will you respond to that question? That moment in blazing glory utterly, completely, absolutely transformed Paul. And in a flash of grace, he went from Saul the terrorist to Paul the apostle. As David Wilkerson has famously said, what Jesus saved you for is more important than what he saved you 
from. And from that moment on the Damascus Road till he sat in the prison pouring out his, his last letter to Timothy, his entire life was a living sacrifice. Paul gave it all. Paul's life was marked by teaching and preaching and, and writing and loving and declaring and planting the church, obeying Jesus' command to make disciples of all nations. And when I read first, um, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 28, I, can't, I can only imagine the persecutions, the beatings, the stonings, the shipwrecks, the unrelenting dangers, sleepless nights, hunger-ridden days, alone sitting in gloomy cells, suffering shame and mockery. And then I imagine Paul reliving all of those moments and burned into his mind the searing memory of the Damascus Road, filled his heart and filled his mind, and again and again... Following Jesus doesn't cost you something. Following Jesus costs you everything. I am already being poured out. Who is worth that? Paul knew he was about to die. His life of sacrifice had led to this moment of ultimate sacrifice. But Paul was already on the altar. He knew this was his last letter, his last opportunity to speak to his son in the faith. And interestingly, when he talks about his time here, he uses the word kairos for time. Now, chronos is the word we typically use for time, like, you know, I have a watch. My African friends would always say, you know, you Americans, we don't understand you because you all wear watches, but you never seem to have any time. But kairos is God's time. It's opportunity. It's the right time. And Paul knew this was God's time, and he was about to give it all. But in Paul's mind, that had already happened on the Damascus Road. The Roman executioner may end his life, but he could not take his life. Paul belonged to Jesus. This was God's time. It was his kairos moment. And he's telling Timothy, I am a sacrifice for him. My life is a sacrifice to him. I'll live and I'll die for Jesus. His entire life was lived for one moment, for one purpose. Who is worth that? In this critical moment, Paul condenses his entire life and ministry down to just three short phrases. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now, over the next couple of weeks, pastors Brian and Maritza will look at, I have finished the race. And then missionaries Roberto and Michelle Perez will look at, I have kept the faith. So this morning, we're going to look for just a moment at, I have fought the good fight. In, in English, it's six words. In Greek, the original language of the New Testament, it's, it's four words. And these four words describe the nature and the purpose of the fight. The nature of the fight. This phrase can literally be translated, the fight I have fought. And it's most likely what Paul is referring to is a wrestling match. And in that fight, you had to prepare. You had to, you had to focus. You had to, you had to engage. You had to give it everything because that fight was normally a fight to the death. In other words, the person who lives wins. You fight like your life depends upon it because it does. Nothing could distract you. Nothing could dissuade you. Once you were on the mat, you were there to win at all costs. 
Paul used the very same words to encourage Timothy twice before. Timothy, fight the good fight. He says it in 1 Timothy 1.18 and 1 Timothy 6.12. And it's very possible that Timothy, that young pastor, was possibly suffering from timidity or crippling self-doubt. But bear in mind where he was serving. Timothy pastored the church in Ephesus. Ephesus was the most critical church in the entirety of the New Testament. It was started by Apollos. It was pastored by Paul. It was pastored by Timothy, most likely by the Apostle John. There were house churches, as some scholars say, numbered to 90,000 people. Nine New Testament letters were written from, to, or about Ephesus, and the Ephesian church became the epicenter of Paul's ministry to Asia Minor for two years. It was a critical church, but it was also a church that from the very beginning struggled struggled with false teachers and their bad teaching. In fact, in Acts chapter 20, Paul talks to them to their face and he calls them savage wolves because false teaching leads you to sin and strife and confusion and dissension and eventually damnation. It diminishes you and it diminishes your perspective of Jesus Christ, and it distracts you from his calling to make disciples of all nations. So Paul commands Timothy, Timothy, fight. Fight the good fight, Timothy. It's a battle. Fight it. Engage. Excuse me while I get excited up here for just a second. The purpose of the fight. You notice the word good. The good fight. Strange, isn't it? That word can actually be translated as whole or virtuous or right or excellent or praiseworthy or beautiful. (laughs) Why is this fight so very critical? What makes this fight beautiful? It's beautiful because people's lives and their eternities depend upon it. And you'll notice that just prior to this, in chapter 4, verse number 1, Paul gives Timothy a charge, and then he follows with a single command, which is then followed by eight more commands. But the first command, he says, is preach the word. Timothy, preach the word. How do you fight? Preach the word. And the declared word is the power of Jesus Christ to destroy the grip of sin, to forgive the shame of sin, to erase the guilt of sin. In the declared word, Jesus speaks into people's lives who they were meant to be, who he created them to be, what they can do. Because when the word is preached, Jesus is speaking. And one word from Jesus can change your life forever. And then that's followed by eight other commands from Paul to Timothy. And all of them, every single one of them, are designed to bring people near to Jesus. The first four commands are about his preaching. He says, Timothy, preach the word. Be ready at any moment. Correct, rebuke, and encourage. Now, people read that word rebuke, and we assume the worst. We assume a negative. But a rebuke is reorientation. A rebuke brings me, brings us to our senses, and it helps us to see things clearly. These commands are designed to maximize the moment for people to hear the word and to be transformed. They're not against us, they're for us. They bring us closer to Jesus Christ, make us more like him. Timothy, preach the word. And then there are four other commands about his ministry. He says, Timothy, be self-controlled. 
Endure so you don't hear that much anymore, do you? Be self-controlled. Endure suffering. Share the gospel. Do your work thoroughly. Do your work completely. And similar to the other four commands, these are designed to maximize the moment for people to live the word and to live the transformation in their life, in their community. Timothy, preach like people's lives depend upon it because they do. People, or Paul rather, likens gospel declaration, church planting, and defending the faith as the battle, the supreme struggle. It's a a beautiful fight because the result of the effort is glory to Jesus and transform lives and transform communities. A life transformed by the word can transform other people's lives as well and transform the community, transform people, transform communities. Timothy, it's not about you. It's not about us, it's about them. It's about him. Preach the word, Timothy. It's not just any fight. It's the beautiful fight. It's the fight of your life, Timothy. Give it all, give it everything. Timothy, fight the good fight. Fight, Timothy, fight. And some of you right now are saying to yourself, what in the world does this, what does this have to do with missions? It has everything to do with missions. Missionaries do what we do because of who Jesus Christ is. We don't just go because of a compunction to to ameliorate suffering or because we feel sorry for people. We go because Jesus loves the lost. Jesus loves every, every girl and every boy, every woman and every man. And he wants them to be set free from the power of sin and to be brought into relationship with him and have eternity with him. Preach the word, Timothy. Give it everything. Give it your all. Don't hold anything back. It's a life and death struggle. It's a beautiful fight, and it's worth everything. Give it all. Who is worth that? I will never forget all those pencils. I will never forget my friend Welday's words burned into my heart. Steve, when they put their pencils in the offering, they put themselves in the offering. I was recently in Ethiopia for meetings. And at one point in my time there, a man came up to me and he said, Steve, you don't know me, but... I, I was a member of Citus Kilo for many years, and I was there during that missions convention back. Do you remember that missions convention all those years ago, Steve? He said, I was there. I was a, I was a student at Addis Ababa University, and I was seated in that crowd of thousands. And I remember listening to the word you preached that day, and I remember how the Holy Spirit interacted with my spirit, and I was so gripped by the Holy Spirit that when that when the, the offering was passed, he said, I, I didn't have anything to give, but I, I pulled up my, my pencil and I put my pencil in the offering. He said, because Steve, what you may not realize as an American is that pencil represented everything to me. All my life, I worked for the day when I would sit for those exams, and I was the pride of my family because I did so well that I got to go to Addis Ababa University. They were expecting wonderful fruit. They were expecting it to affect the entire family and the village and the community because they had sent their son, if you would, to Addis Ababa University, and he was going to make it good, and he was going to make it right for all of us. 
And he said that that pen, or that pencil rather, represented my future, it represented my past, it represented my hope, it represented my identity. And when that offering passed in front of me, he said, I knew the only response that I could give was just to give it all. So I took my pencil out and I put it in that offering. He said, the next day I went to the dean of Addis Ababa University and I resigned as a student. He said, I immediately went to a Bible college and I enrolled to learn how to preach the gospel. And he said, Steve, from that day until now, I have been covering Ethiopia with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I have been preaching the gospel. I have been planting churches. I have been doing what Jesus told me to do, and it was the best decision of my life. Steve, I gave it all. One life. One life to change a family, to change a village, to change a community. One life to change the nations. Who is worth that? Will you be that one life? Will you give it all? Would you join me in prayer, please? Father, today I pray for people who are watching this in their homes. Maybe they're watching it in their offices or at a friend's house or maybe in their car. And that question just keeps ringing through my mind. Who is worth that? Only you, Jesus. You're ultimately worthy. Ultimately beautiful. You are our King and our Lord and our Savior and our Healer. You are the one who loves us. You are the Prince of Peace. You are the King of Glory. And right now, people are sitting in the Valley of Decision and they're trying to decide and they're wondering in their mind, well, who is Jesus Christ? If he's more than a man, if he's more than a prophet, if he's more than a teacher or a philosopher, more than a, who is he? Holy Spirit, reveal yourself to them right now, I pray, and show them who Jesus is. And there are others that are listening, and you're saying, I want to be that one. And I believe there's some of you that are sitting right now in front of the screen, you're holding a pen or a pencil, and you're waving, you're saying, I want to be that one. I want to be the one that makes a difference in my family, my community, my city, the nations. I want to be that one. I want to give it all because he is worth that. And I pray right now, Holy Spirit, that you seal that in their spirit, in their heart and in their mind, this moment of consecration, that you use them for your honor and you use them for your glory. In Jesus' beautiful and powerful name. And if today you made a decision to follow Jesus Christ, right below here there's a link. Would you click that link 
and someone will help you walk out your new calling. And if you made a decision to follow Jesus Christ into ministry, please click that as well. Talk to your pastors. Hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. Be faithful locally so Jesus can make you effective globally. Thank you and God bless you, GT. Thanks for joining us today and a special thank you to Steve Pennington for sharing his story with us. I hope you feel inspired and motivated to explore what it means to be poured out for Christ, fulfilling the great commission that he called all of us to, which is telling everyone we can about Jesus. If you know someone who would benefit from hearing today's message, a replay can be found on our Facebook page and our YouTube channel for you to share. You can stay connected with GT Church all week long on social media everywhere at GT Church Online. And you can also download our GT Church app and stay up to date on all of the events and happenings we have coming up. I hope you have a great rest of your week and we'll see you this Wednesday for our Growing Together segment on Facebook and YouTube at seven o'clock.